Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, many years ago, you called Simon Peter to follow you. We pray and ask that you would speak to us once again like you did to him, that you would teach us what it means to be your disciples. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. The place was Germany. The year was 1937. Adolf Hitler had already risen to power and consolidated political control and was actively building up his military. Jews were being systematically stripped of any legal rights or economic opportunities. And any Germans who dared to publicly oppose the Nazi party were being forcibly suppressed. So you can imagine how a brilliant young pastor and academic like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, how he felt the urgency that he must have felt, the pressure to speak out on what was taking place in both German society and in the German church. And he did. Bonhoeffer spoke up. In fact, he published a book that year addressing what he thought was the greatest threat to the life of the German church. But you may be surprised by what issue he chose to address. Because you might think, with everything going on, surely he would, he would write a book about the dangers of anti-Semitic prejudice. Or he would write a book about the, the idolatrous temptation of the, the sort of fervent German nationalism that was sweeping the country. But as dangerous as those ideologies were, in Bonhoeffer's opinion, they weren't the greatest threat to Christians. No, the most dangerous threat was not anti-Semitism, nor was it nationalistic fervor. It was the widespread preaching and acceptance of what he called cheap grace. Cheap grace, he said, is the mortal enemy of our church. Cheap grace, he went on to say, is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. In other words, cheap grace is the, the proclamation of God's love and kindness without the call to follow Jesus. Cheap grace is the notion that it is possible to be a Christian without being a disciple. That you can enjoy all the benefits that Jesus has to offer without seriously listening to him or doing what he says. And it was that attitude, Bonhoeffer thought, it was that attitude that was at the heart of the problems facing German Christians. Their problem wasn't just that they had fallen for the lure of anti-Semitism or nationalism. Their problem was that they thought they could be Christians without being disciples. Of course, that attitude, it's not like 1930s Germany was the first time we've seen it. It's not a new attitude. You can see it all the way back in the Gospels in Jesus' own day. Everywhere Jesus goes, he attracts these big crowds of people. And they come for a variety of reasons. A lot of them come because they, they want him to heal their sickness. 
Some of them come because they think that he is going to lead some political revolution and, and they want to be a part of it. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, I know why some of y'all are here. Y'all are here just because you want another free meal. That's why you came. People came to Jesus for lots of reasons. And you know, they admired Jesus and they were, they were thankful for what he gave them. But many of them made it clear that they had no intention of being his disciple. That's the attitude that Bonhoeffer thought was present among churchgoers in his own day. You, you continue to see that attitude present among us as well. But I don't think that's what we actually want. Speaking for myself, I don't want to just be one of the crowd. I want to be a disciple. I want to follow Jesus. And I think that most of you, that's what you want as well. But how can we do that? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does a life of discipleship even look like? Now, this morning, I want to answer those questions by doing exactly what Bonhoeffer did when he wrote that book, by looking at the account of Jesus' call of his own disciples in the Gospels. Specifically, I want to look at the story that we read in Luke chapter 5, the story of Jesus the first time he meets and calls Peter to be his disciple. And I want to suggest that within this story that there's three fundamental truths that we can learn about the nature of what it means to follow Jesus. First, we learn that following Jesus begins with actually doing what he says, listening to him and obeying. And then we find out that, that following Jesus inevitably leads to an uncomfortable awareness and confrontation with our own sin. And finally, that Jesus enables us to follow him by comforting us and then by commissioning us. So turn with me to Luke chapter 5 in your Bibles. And notice how this story begins. Luke opens it up in verse 1, kind of setting the scene for us. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, the lake of Gennesaret, that's just Luke's particular way of referring to the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus is at the Sea of Galilee, and, and once again, he's attracted a big crowd. In fact, there's so many people that he doesn't even have any elbow space. He can hardly breathe. They're pressing in on him everywhere. So, so he commandeers a fishing boat, and he tells the owner, Simon Peter, he says, just put out a little bit of way into the water so I have enough space to actually address the people. And he does. And then notice what he does when he finishes speaking to the crowds. What does he then say to Peter in verse 4? Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. I don't know about you. I think that's a strange way to ask someone to be your disciple. Hey, Peter, put down... Go out into the water and let down your nets for a catch. If Jesus wants Peter to be his disciple, why didn't he just tell him? It would be much clearer. Or why doesn't he just ask Peter, why doesn't he ask Peter what Peter thinks of him? See whether he really believes that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, is, doesn't, isn't that how we start? Doesn't following Jesus begin with belief? Isn't faith what determines whether someone is a Christian or not? Well, it's true that being a Christian is a matter of faith, but I think sometimes we misunderstand what that means. 
Because sometimes we think that faith is about having certain beliefs. That having faith in Jesus is just having the right beliefs about Jesus, having all the right opinions. And as long as we believe all the right things, as long as we have all the right opinions, somehow that makes us his disciple. But faith is not about holding the right opinions. Faith is about trust. It is about trusting a person enough to do what they say, even when you don't understand. Faith is about trusting that a person will keep their word, keep their promises. That's why the author of Hebrews, in that beautiful chapter in Hebrews chapter 11, where he wants to talk about the nature of faith, it's why the author of Hebrews explains faith by telling a bunch of stories about people who trusted God enough to do things that seemed crazy, to do what God told them. By faith, Hebrews says, Noah built a boat when there wasn't any water around. By faith, Abraham packed up and left his homeland and went in search of a country he didn't even know where he was going. It was by faith, Hebrews says, it was by faith that the people of Israel, when they were surrounded by a warring Egyptian army, it was by faith they took their first steps on that long march through the middle of the Red Sea. Because that's what faith is. Faith is trusting God enough to actually do what he says. And that's why Jesus begins his interaction with Peter this way. Because he's teaching Peter that being his disciple begins with doing what he says. I also think that's why Jesus, why Jesus chooses to give Peter fishing advice. I mean, it seems odd, you know, because here's Jesus this, this reputable, miracle-working rabbi, I'm sure Peter feels like he has a lot of things to learn from Jesus, but the one thing he doesn't need Jesus to teach him is how to fish. Peter knows how to fish. Especially, he doesn't need to teach him when he's gonna give him such useless advice. I mean, it's not like Jesus actually teaches him a new fishing technique. It's not like Jesus says, hey, I know this secret fishing hole across the lake over there. If you go there, you're sure to catch some. No, he tells Peter, hey, Peter, go out and do exactly what you have been doing all night long with zero success. Just do it again. You know the crazy thing? The crazy thing is Peter actually does it. He knows it doesn't make any sense. He tells him, master, we've been doing this all night. But... At your word, I will let down the nets. And I wonder if you or I would do the same. Do we actually respect, do we take Jesus seriously enough that we will do what he says when it doesn't seem to make any sense? Especially when it comes to those aspects of our lives that we think we know better. Will we listen to him? I think if we're honest, I think most of us would have to admit we really don't. We really don't take him that seriously. We admire him. We feel gratitude toward him. We even worship him. But when it comes to the day-to-day -day decisions of our lives, Jesus is rarely the person we go to for advice. To quote Dallas Willard, what lies at the heart of the astonishing disregard of Jesus found in the moment-to-moment -moment existence of professing Christians is a simple lack of respect for him. 
We just don't take him that seriously. But if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to take him seriously. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to actually do what he says. Because that's where discipleship begins. Discipleship begins with actually doing what Jesus says. That's one thing we learn from Peter's story, but it's not the only thing. Peter's story also teaches us that if you're going to be a disciple, if you're going to follow Jesus, that you will have to have an uncomfortable confrontation with your own sin. After Peter does what Jesus tells him, he lets down the net, you know, and he catches so many fish that they have to put it into two boats. What does he do then? Does he thank Jesus? You just, you just bankrolled my entire month? Does he tell him, I want to come and be your disciple? No. He says, leave. Depart from me. Go away. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. And that might seem like an odd response, but really, you know, it it kind of fits a biblical pattern. Whenever people come into the presence of God, whenever people come into the presence of Jesus, they are inevitably and quickly led to a realization of their incredible unworthiness and just how sinful they really are. That's why you'll notice, it's why those who seek to follow Jesus most closely always are the most aware of their own faults. It's why the greatest of saints always know themselves as the greatest of sinners. Because Discipleship leads to an awareness of sin. You can see it even in the Bible with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, in one of his letters, he talks about himself and he says, I am the foremost of sinners. And Paul doesn't say it in the past tense. I used to be a crummy guy. I used to be a bad sinner. He says it in the present. This is how he thinks of himself in the present. Years after he has been following Jesus, I am the foremost of sinners. If you're going to follow Jesus, you won't be able to avoid the realization of just how unworthy you really are. And thankfully, that's not where this interaction ends. Imagine if it did. Imagine if Jesus did exactly what Peter asked. He left. Imagine if Jesus said, you know what, you're right. You really are a screw-up. You're a sinner. Not only that, you're you're just a fisherman. I don't even know why I'm bothered talking to you. And he left. Because that's what other people do, right? Or at least that's what we think that they're going to do. We've all convinced ourselves that the only reason that other people want to be around us, want to spend time with us, is because there's something about ourselves, something attractive or something clever, or at least we're like fun company. There's something about us that draws them. And we've all convinced ourselves that the moment they realize that it's not true, the moment they realize we're not really that smart, we're actually not that fun to be with sometimes, the moment they know who we really are, they're just going to abandon us. But Jesus doesn't do that with Peter. He's not shocked at Peter's confession. And he doesn't leave. Instead, he does what he always does with his disciples. He comforts him in his sin, and then he commissions him with a job. 
First, Jesus comforts him. Which notice, this does not mean, this does not mean that he minimizes or dismisses Peter's confession. Jesus doesn't say, no, come on, Peter. You're just beating yourself up. You're really not that bad. It was the other guy's fault. We do that with our friends when we want to comfort each other. You know, we try to say, no, you're really not that bad. Jesus doesn't do that with us. He doesn't tell us, oh, you're not a sinful man. He accepts exactly, accepts what Peter has to say. He knows it's true. All he says is, do not be afraid. Of course, there's a, there's a big theological reason that Jesus can say that. The reason that he can tell Peter, do not be afraid, it's okay, is because he himself, he himself has come to succeed where Peter failed. He himself is making up for all of Peter's imperfections with his own perfection. He knows that he is going to bear the penalty of Peter's sin in his own body on the cross. Jesus knows that, but he doesn't explain it all to Peter. He doesn't give him a theological treatise. He just says, Peter, I see you. I know exactly who you are. But don't be afraid. I still want you. And then he gives him a job. From now on, you will be catching men. Several years ago, the social scientist Arthur Brooks he noticed an interesting trend in some research he was doing, which is that most people as we age, people tend to report increased levels of happiness as they get into retirement and into older age. That's the normal pattern. But there was one demographic that seemed to consistently violate that trend. And it was professionally successful men who, when they got into their mid-70s, instead of feeling greater happiness reported significant decrease in happiness. And the reason for that, according to Brooks, the reason for that is because they used to feel important and they used to feel needed. And now they feel unneeded and now they feel useless and now they feel irrelevant. It's the same reason that, it's the same reason that you often see a, a higher much higher use of opioids and opioid addiction in areas that have severe unemployment. It's not just because people are poor. It's because when they don't have work, they feel useless, worthless, unneeded. And that is a terrible thing to feel. And I think that Peter probably felt some of that that day standing there exposed in front of Jesus. When he tells Jesus to depart from him, that's not just an expression of, I don't feel worthy. When he says depart from him, that's an expression of, I am of no good to you. You don't want me. I'm of no use. What could I, a sinful, screwed up fisherman, what could I possibly have to offer you the Messiah and your kingdom mission. So imagine how Peter felt standing there, more vulnerable, more exposed than he's ever been. Imagine how he felt when he hears from Jesus that Jesus not only accepts him, Jesus values him. 
He wants him. Jesus has use for him in his kingdom. When they return, when they return to the shore, Luke tells us that, that Peter and James and John, that they all leave everything behind and follow Jesus, which is always an unsettling thing to read and difficult to comprehend. Because, you know, we, we tend to be attached to a lot of things. And it's pretty hard to comprehend how someone can leave all that stuff behind and follow Jesus. And so we get this image in our head of the disciples is that they just somehow like deny everything they want and they're these heroic and selfless saints. But that's not true. There is a reason that they were willing to leave everything behind. There is a reason that they were so captivated by Jesus that they wanted nothing more than to just follow him around for the rest of their lives. And it's because Jesus saw them for who they really were. He saw right through whatever kind of, whatever kind of act they put on in front of other people. He wasn't impressed by their wit or charm or humor or fishing knowledge. He knew exactly who they were. And yet he wanted them. Bonhoeffer said, we do a great unkindness to people when we, when we proclaim to them cheap grace, grace without discipleship. Because what we are doing is we are robbing people of the opportunity to know and be known by Jesus. The call to follow Jesus is not easy. If you want to follow Jesus, you actually have to listen to him. You actually have to do what he says. If you want to follow Jesus, you are not going to be able to avoid those parts of yourselves that you'd rather not think about. You're going to become aware of how unworthy you really are. But just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not worth it. There is a reason that Jesus was so attractive. If you follow Jesus, you don't have to pretend anymore. If you follow Jesus, you never have to be afraid. And in following Jesus, you will find that your life has immense value to God more than you ever thought possible that he has a role for you to play in his kingdom. But you know, maybe this morning, maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, well, this all sounds really great, but you don't know me. And I've tried to follow Jesus and I screwed it up several times. And I say that because that's often how I feel. I remember a time very distinctly in high school I've done this a lot of times, by the way. But I remember a time very distinctly in high school. I'd read this book called Don't Waste Your Life. And it was all about really following Jesus and giving up everything. And I thought, this is it. I don't want to be, I don't want to just be one of the crowd. I am going to follow him. I even shaved my head. I don't know why. It was a weird symbolic thing for me at the moment. It's an expression to me of how serious I was about this. I spoke to him in prayer I, I cried and I said, I am going to follow Jesus. And then I messed it up. 
And I remember a couple years later, there was a time in college I had had a whole year where I just went through this period of disillusionment and I didn't know what I believed. And then I was sort of coming back to faith. And when I came back to faith, I told myself, if I'm going to be a Christian, I'm going to be serious about it. I'm not gonna be some cultural Christian. I'm not just gonna show up at church once a week. I am going to be a disciple. And I was serious. And it was pretty quick that I realized just how half-hearted and just how poor of a disciple I often am. And that's one of the reasons I love Peter's story. Because, you know, Peter's a screw-up. Like, not just at the beginning. He continues to screw up. And even after three years of being with Jesus every single day, three years in Jesus' company, when it really matters most, Peter denies him three times and abandons him. And how does Jesus respond? How does he respond to this, to this serial failure of a disciple? In John chapter 21, we read that after his resurrection, Jesus meets Peter. Where? Do you know where? He meets him at the Sea of Galilee. He meets him at the very place where their relationship began. And you know what Peter's been doing? He's been fishing all night and he ain't caught a thing. And so Jesus says, he says, let down your nets. And he does. It's this miraculous haul. So Peter knows exactly who he is. He realizes who he is. And of course, Peter feels terrible shame and he feels guilt, but he knows Jesus. And so he jumps in the water anyway and he swims to him. And when he gets to Jesus, what does Jesus do? He comforts him. He comforts him with a meal that he's made. He sits down and has a meal with him and then he takes him on a walk and he gives him a job. Peter, I still need you. I have use for you. I have work for you to do. Because that's the pattern of the life of discipleship. You see this pattern, this is not just how you become a disciple. This is how you remain a disciple. If you want to follow Jesus, then it means that you listen to him and you do what he says. And it means that then you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to confront and acknowledge and confess your failing and your sin. And then you are going to hear from Jesus, I know, I see you, I know what you've done. Don't be afraid. I have work for you to do. I don't know if you've realized that, this, but that, that's really what we do every time we gather together for church. We all come together and then we listen closely to what Jesus is saying to us in his word. And then after that, we all acknowledge and confess our failure and our sin. And then Jesus invites us to his table and he comforts us with a meal. And then he commissions us and he sends us out to do the kingdom work he has given us to do every single week. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right. The greatest danger that threatens us are not cultural forces and they're not ideologies. The greatest danger that threatens us is our temptation and tendency to forget the call to follow Jesus. And that's tragic because as Bonhoeffer says, 
because following Jesus is the only way to experience genuine, true happiness. Happy are they, Bonhoeffer said. Happy are they who know that discipleship simply means the life which springs from grace and that grace simply means discipleship. Happy are they who have become Christians in this sense of the word. So that's my prayer for me this morning. That's my prayer for you, is that we would come to know the happiness that those who follow Jesus experience. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.